BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's Monday, September 17th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So how do you pronounce the name of a uh, wolf-like creature that is generally yellow-furred and you often see in cities? Are we talking about the type of animal that we've seen in Looney Tunes cartoons for a long time. Whose first name might be Wiley. Okay, I would say Coyote. Coyote, yes, that's exactly how I would pronounce it. But did you know that half of the country pronounces it completely differently? Oh, yeah, yeah, Coyote. Yeah, and that that half of the country thinks that this beautiful animal is vermin. Vermin, really? (laughs) Like it's an actual pest. That it's a pest and something that we should shoot. Well, I I know that coyotes are hunted oftentimes, but I never thought that that hunting was done at much of a scale. Yeah, no, apparently it's like a major call, but the coyote is so well adapted to living amongst human beings that it just continues to survive as a species. We actually have one that lives right near my house in the big park by my house. The other day I got up, I think it was like six in the morning. It was pretty quiet out. Coyote comes just marching down the hill of my street, walking in the middle of where traffic would be, just prancing along, going back into the park. Yeah. And when it comes to a wild animal living in an urban environment, coyotes are often what we see. I mean, they're they're, they're pretty common. And amazingly, they have adapted like human beings to virtually every environment in North America. And so I wanted to learn more about coyotes and, you know, this history of them. And so I spoke to Dan Flores, who is a retired professor from the University of Montana, Missoula, um, currently living outside of Santa Fe. And he recently wrote a book called Coyote America. And his thesis is that the coyote is essentially a symbol of Americanism in many different ways um, and very close to humans, much like Ben Goldfarb believes that beavers are, um, that just like beavers can change their environment the way humans can. Coyotes have a lot of behaviors that are very human-like. Um, and in fact, that they've been a part of our existence for you know many, 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 many years. 
This sounds good, but I have a feeling this is going to take a turn. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, there are our treatment of coyotes is not quite as good. Um, And one of the things I always wondered is like, why haven't we domesticated them? So those questions we will answer in my interview with Dan Flores. So let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Mother Dirt. Are you too clean? Modern hygiene has led us to believe that removing the bacteria from our body is a good thing, but that's not the case. Our skin, much like our guts, needs good bacteria to thrive. Mother Dirt's AO Plus Mist restores a good bacteria that once existed on our skin naturally, but has been wiped away by modern hygiene. Since ammonia is the stinky part of our sweat, the AOB in AO Plus Mist helps with BO. 60% of Mother Dirt AO Plus Mist users are able to stop using deodorant altogether, and 66% of users find that they take shorter showers and cut out an average of two and a half products from their routine. Right now, Inquiring Minds listeners will get 20% off and free shipping with the code MINDS. Head to motherdirt.com to learn more and get 20% off and free shipping with code MINDS. Plant the seeds of healthy living and nurture your nature at motherdirt.com. Dan Flores, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm proud to be with you, Andre. I want to start by asking you to clear up a kind of misunderstanding that I have. So here in San Francisco, when we see uh, an animal that, you know, looks like a wolf, but is more brown, we call it a coyote. Uh, But I've been to other states and heard people refer to the same animal as a coyote. So what is up with that? Yes, uh, that's an interesting part of many very fascinating elements of the coyote story in North America. And it's probably as well as I could research it and figure it out from the 19th century. It's a story that basically goes back to the middle of the 19th century uh, because the word coyote, in fact, in either pronunciation, coyote too, that's actually an Aztec Indian word from the Nahuatl language that probably is at least a thousand, maybe a couple of thousand years old. And it was brought to the southwest of what is now the United States, particularly to Santa Fe, New Mexico, when Santa Fe was founded in the early 1600s. And Americans traveling west, when they first encountered coyotes, because they didn't encounter them until they got west of the Mississippi River, in fact, not until they got to the Great Plains, They called them, Lewis and Clark gave them the name Prairie Wolf. And so for a lot of the 19th century, even into the 20th century, a lot of Americans called these animals Prairie Wolves. But when Americans got to the Southwest and ultimately also to California, they began to encounter people who were using this ancient North American name. uh, And it basically had been translated from the Aztec into a Spanish pronunciation, coyote. And so many Americans, particularly sort of the literary class who heard that, took it back to the East Coast, ultimately to the West Coast, and the word coyote entered the language. And Mark Twain, by the way, in a book that he wrote in the 1870s, sort of told Americans, this is how you pronounced it. It was called, the animal was called coyote, three syllables. So that became sort of the way People on the coasts uh, and in cities tended to pronounce the name. But at the same time that this was happening in the Southwest, there was another group of Americans there who were mostly fur trappers and traders. 
many of them from places like Kentucky and Arkansas and Illinois, sort of from rural backgrounds. And as best I can I could figure out, they seemed to think that a three-syllable word was giving coyotes a little bit too much credit. So they shortened the pronunciation to two syllables, coyote, and that pronunciation ended up sort of in the hinterland and in much of the rural part of the United States. So we've sort of gotten to the 21st century now with two ways to say the name. And as I write in Coyote America, it's almost become kind of a political differentiation. The people who tend to be advocates of coyotes and admire them and like them tend to call them by the three-syllable name. And a lot of the people who end up hunting them, shooting them, trapping them, uh, pretty routinely call them coyotes. So it's left us with this kind of almost a political division as if we needed another one. But there you go. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I, I really enjoyed about your book is, is, is how the coyote is, is, in fact, such a great symbol of America in so many layered, nuanced ways that I hadn't thought about. Uh, and this kind of political divide, uh, you know, and or, or rural versus urban, uh, you know, really, really captures something very, you know, con very, very current uh, in American culture. It does indeed. And the coyote is right there in the mix. <laughs> So so let's let's go back to um, Lewis and Clark and when they first discovered or when I guess when they first they were the first uh, white individuals to encounter a coyote and write about it. Is that right? Well, they were the first Americans to be sure. I mean, uh, the Spanish writers uh, in the 1580s, as early as the 1580s, had provided uh, written and literary descriptions of of coyotes they used the Aztec word too. And they, those early Spanish writers kind of were confused as were Lewis and Clark about actually what these animals were because Europeans didn't have coyotes. That's one of the ways that the coyote differed from a lot of the animals Europeans were familiar with. I mean, coming out of Europe, we knew animals like bears, we knew wolves, we knew foxes, but we didn't have anything like a coyote. And so there was confusion from the very beginning about what it was. Some of the early writers, including Lewis and Clark, at first thought when they saw these animals, they thought they were seeing some new kind of fox. And then once one of the members of the party shot one, this was in the fall and September of 1804, and they had it lying in the grass in front of them and could look at it more closely, William Clark sat down and wrote in his journal, that night, what we heretofore thought were foxes, uh, in fact, is some kind of wolf. And we decided around the fire tonight that we would name this animal the prairie wolf. And so they at first had thought it was a fox. In fact, the first American painting of a coyote, which was done a few years later by an artist on another American exploring expedition, actually was labeled fox, although it's clearly the portrait of a coyote that they had encountered. I mean, and some American naturalists in the early 19th century thought coyotes were jackals. And so there was about a two decade period when there was kind of a scientific battle going on about whether or not coyotes were indeed some new kind of American species that hadn't been seen before or whether they were possibly just something like 
a, a, an African uh, jackal that had a close relationship uh, to the jackals of the old world. Well, so let's talk about the sort of uh, species itself and, and how we should be classifying it. What, what makes a coyote more like a wolf, say, than a fox? Well, coyotes are in the same genus as wolves in the genus Canis. And that's the same genus, by the way, that our domestic dogs are in as well. Uh, and foxes, uh, red foxes and gray foxes are in two different genuses from, from Canis. But the evolutionary origins of all the members of the canid family, the Canidae, which includes wolves and coyotes and jackals and wild dogs and dingoes, and domestic dogs, those origins all go back to North America about 5.3 million years ago. The ancestors of the early canids seem to have divided up into large versions, middle-sized versions, and smaller versions as far back as two or three million years ago. And the large versions, of course, became wolves. And some of the ones that became wolves as far back as two million years ago left North America via the Bering Land Bridge, crossed over into the old world, and remained in the old world in Asia and in Europe uh, for a couple of million years before finally coming back to the Americas about 25 or 30,000 years ago. So our present wolves today, our uh, four species of gray wolves, in America are all the descendants of wolves that that evolved for part of their existence in other parts of the world and then returned here. But there were also wolves that remained in North America. And I'm going to some length to explain this because it helps us understand why today coyotes are interbreeding with some wolves, but not other wolves. And the wolves that remained in North America were the ancestors of our southern red wolves that were found from Texas all the way along the uh, Atlantic coast up into New England. And the other species was Canis lycaon, which is now known as the eastern wolf. And those wolves seem to have never left North America, but remained here. And coyotes also remained here for the entire five million years of their evolution. They became the modern animal about 800,000 to a million years ago. They remained here as well. And so that evolution, as ancient as it is, has meant that today, as coyotes have been colonizing across the Mississippi River and entering territory that's occupied by these old American wolves, they're able to hybridize with red wolves and with eastern gray wolves and create a new animal that some people back east are referring to as uh, a koi wolf uh, or an eastern coyote, which has about 15% wolf genetics. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's very common in San Francisco to encounter coyotes, uh, either in hikes or in Golden Gate Park. And, and I want to talk about the fact that coyotes really are um, everywhere in the U.S. in a minute. But you know, even though there are warnings not to approach them, I, I feel like, you know, if I saw a wolf, I'd be a lot more afraid. So is there something about the coyote species that makes them less aggressive? Or is that just because 
you know, these particular animals are, are so used to people. And so, you know, we don't hear about coyotes attacking uh, humans very often. Yes. I mean, the truth is you don't actually hear about wolves attacking humans either. I mean, coyotes and wolves uh, are social species. They're very, as I point out in the book in a lot of places, they're very similar to us, which is kind of why coyotes have functioned as this sort of avatar stand-in for humans in this old Indian literature of North America. And one of the ways they're similar is that they have to, their young have to be taught through training, through really the imparting culture to them, how to survive in the world. And one of the things we know about the canids like wolves and coyotes is that when they teach their young what to hunt, human beings aren't one of the the template prey species that they they uh, sort of single out for them. Coyotes teach their young how to hunt rabbits and rats and mice and grasshoppers and how to find fruit. And wolves teach their young how to hunt deer and elk. But none of them really have humans as part of the template. But I think the reason that you kind of react in San Francisco, and we all do everywhere. I mean, I live with coyotes here uh, outside Santa Fe, New Mexico, in much the same way you do in San Francisco, is that coyotes, for one thing, are not as large as wolves. They're a mid-sized canid rather than a large-sized canid. So they're only about a third to a half the poundage and the size of a gray wolf. But they're also... Uh, and this is has to do again with their evolution. They're all coyotes are also a lot more used to hanging out around human beings. They've been hanging out around our camps and our towns ever since humans got to North America. And one of the reasons they do that is because of their prey. Our our houses and our inhabitations produce a lot of rice, uh, mice, and rats, and so. Coyotes naturally are drawn to an abundance of their particular prey, and so they tend to hang out around us. And that means they they feel pretty relaxed around humans. And so a, a very common experience that we all have had uh, with coyotes is that a coyote will trot by you sometimes 25 or 30 feet away and will be seemingly very nonchalant about it. And some places where people shoot at them, of course, they they realize uh, immediately that human beings are a threat. And I have seen them in the rural West where people shoot them on sight. As soon as you see them, man, they're going in a zigzag fashion at high speed across the landscape. But in places where they're not used to being shot at or harassed, I mean, they're very calm and very nonchalant around humans. And so it makes it possible to really get to watch them and observe their natural history, which is a very fun thing. And it kind of makes me wonder, though, why haven't we domesticated them? Why don't people have coyotes as pets? Well, there's a there's a theory out there among naturalists and biologists who study canids that uh, and, and other animals that became domesticated, that those animals chose domestication. The animals that became our domestic dogs were wolves that made a decision to hang out around our camps and essentially end up getting handouts from human beings. And after several generations of that and of selecting for tame puppies, you end up with an animal like the domestic dog, which is 
very tame and very gentle and basically lives by cohabitating with human beings. But coyotes seem at some early point in time, maybe 10,000 or 15,000 years ago, to have decided that they could get the goody out of living around us without having to be our pets. And so they get to hang out around us. They get to exploit the prey base that we generate, but they don't have to do the Fido thing where they shake hands and roll over and fetch the tennis ball. They still get to be wild and they still get to be coyotes. Yeah. And so that's another uh, sort of um, way in which coyotes and humans are similar in, in the sense that um, they, they seem to adapt to their circumstances. So we have, you know, coyotes, as we talked about in, in our cities, but also in rural areas. Um, so what is it about their, their wiring or their brains or, you know, their, the, the species that sort of makes them so, so prevalent in such different environments? Well, they're what biologists refer to as a cosmopolitan species, as are we. I mean, we humans are also a cosmopolitan species, which means we can live everywhere from the Arctic to the tropics. But the way we've done this uh, is as we migrated out of Africa and spread around the world into new settings, we essentially had to recreate and still do recreate our original evolutionary setting around us. So this is the reason, for example, everyone from Edmonton in Canada and Alberta to Tucson in Arizona has the thermostat set at 72 degrees. We're all recreating in our homes and in our businesses the evolutionary environment of tropical Africa a couple of million years ago when we emerged as we emerged as the modern species probably about 250,000 years ago and so we've done that by essentially inventing sewn clothing and harnessing fire and ultimately inventing air conditioning and furnaces and uh, insulation and walls coyotes are cosmopolitan though by being adaptive in terms of how they make a living. And they have become so adaptive that coyotes are now found from the Arctic or above the Arctic Circle, I should say, all the way to the Northern Oceans above the Arctic Circle, down to now, and this is a remarkable uh, part of their expansion here in just the last decade or so, they have now crossed the Isthmus of Panama through Central America and are into Costa Rica and are beginning to colonize South America, which is the first time in nearly 10,000 years a North American species has colonized into South America. And so they have this kind of remarkable ability to live in tropical settings, in jungles, and to make a living out of that to also live in Arctic settings. And also, of course, as we all know now, they're living in urban settings. They're living in, I mean, right in the middle of downtown Chicago, where there's nothing but brick and mortar and high rises. And coyotes are building dens on top of parking garages in the middle of downtown Chicago. So they've got this kind of innate ability to survive in a, a variety of circumstances, and they do it a lot uh, out of being adaptable, but much of it, 
And I think this is one of the reasons that we share so much with them is they live by their wits. And that kind of intelligence, which again came about because of their evolution and things that happened to them, is really the reason I think why they've been able to do so well in so many different settings. And, and that intelligence is captured in the quintessential cartoon, Wiley Coyote, cartoon character. But, uh, you know, they they are not universally loved, as you mentioned, you know, right at the top of the show that there are a lot of people who shoot them, uh, who, you know, don't don't like coyotes. And, and Mark Twain was one of them. What, what did Mark Twain have against coyotes? Well, Mark Twain, of course, was a humorist. And I think what he was doing mostly was trying to be funny. But unfortunately, the three-page passage that he wrote in Roughing It, which of course became a bestseller in the early 1870s, one of the most famous of all Mark Twain's books. It's the account of a trip that he makes across the country uh, from the East to the West Coast. And he provides us an account in Roughing It of a coyote. And the reason it's an important account is not only because so many people read Mark Twain, but because up until that point in American history, because Americans didn't really know anything about the animal and were a little ambivalent about exactly what it stood for, no one had really launched any kind of war of extermination or anything against coyotes. Some people were trapping them and using their furs in the in the fur trade, but we weren't really trying to wipe them out yet. But Twain writes this description, and it's a marvelous description, and as he warms up, I mean, it gets better and better, as you could, you can imagine, about the coyote as this sort of weaselly little scavenger that's living on the offal that's being discarded by the overland migrants from their wagon trains. And he says that it's a kind of a wolf. It has this sort of despairing wolf face, but it's and it's got this sort of wolf pelt draped around this skinny carcass. And it's such a forlorn and despairing looking creature. He goes on to say that uh, a flea would desert it if a nice sized velocipede happened to walk by. And so, of course, as Twain gets going, I mean, it gets better and better and better, and he doesn't leave the topic for three pages. So in the aftermath of that, it's almost as if Americans suddenly had a way to think about these animals for the first time. And it, it you know, it, Twain basically had cast aspersions on coyotes. He hadn't called them noble. Uh, he had called them these despairing little scoundrels that scavenged uh, from Ophel along the trails. And so almost immediately in the wake of that, and I tracked this through into the 1920s, writers in America seem to be competing against one another to try to figure out who could basically write the most horrid description of coyotes in the literature. And it finally reached a point when uh, in Scientific American, of all places, in 1920, a writer wrote a piece about coyotes and basically said, we ought to realize that you should shoot a coyote on sight every time you see it. And he said, it's not that 
the animal is worth anything. In fact, it's not worth as much as the ammunition you're going to be expending to shoot it, but you should shoot it for patriotic reasons. And then he went on to explain the reason killing coyotes is patriotic is because you have to remember when he's writing this 1920, right after the Russian revolution, he says, because coyotes after all are the original Bolsheviks. They're the original communists. So we should be shooting them on sight whenever we encounter them. And I mean, ultimately what this leads to is a war of extermination where the federal government and along with a lot of the states in the West mount campaigns and spend an enormous amount of money actually trying to exterminate coyotes from North America. And we go through a period of uh, some 50 odd years, half a century from 1931 to 1972, when the basic policy towards coyotes in America is to exterminate them in any way possible. Which, which makes their proliferation today you know, so remarkable, is that a, a lot of the species that we didn't mean to exterminate <laughs> have gone extinct. Um, and here, here we had a concerted effort, uh, in a sense, to try to get rid of these animals, and yet you know, they're incredibly prevalent today. So let's talk a little bit about you know, what, what, were the, what was the rationale behind this extermination campaign and you know, what were some of the gruesome details that, that um, you know, coyotes were subjected to at our hands? Well, the, the details are really gruesome. And you know, I've had some readers of my book say that you know, the, the chapter on this is sometimes not easy to get through because, uh, I mean, it lays out the story of what we try to do to these animals. In effect, what we discovered in the late 19th century, really, uh, and really brought to bear beginning in about the 1920s was that the best way to try to exterminate them was to poison them. And so using strychnine, a government agency called the Biological Survey, and this is an agency that had begun back in the 1890s uh, to sort of canvas what sort of flora and fauna uh, were in America at the turn of the 20th century, that agency began to worry about getting funding for a purely scientific mission and decided that they would offer themselves up to Congress as the agency that would solve the so-called predator problem, especially for the livestock industry in the West. And so the biological survey got its first congressional appropriation to solve the predator problem in 1915. And within a space of only 10 years, they had basically poisoned gray wolves in the country down to the point where there were virtually none left. I mean, just to give you an example, in one state, Montana, as late as 1889, something like 30,000 gray wolves were being killed and bountied uh, in Montana. By 1920, that number had dropped to 17. And within five more years, there were virtually no more wolves left. The state bounties plus this federal biological survey campaign had essentially reduced wolves to the point where they were no longer a factor on the American landscape. But at the same time that Montana had killed something like 30,000 wolves in 1889, they had also killed 30,000 coyotes And in 1920, 
30 years later, whereas only 17 wolves were killed in Montana in 1920, the number of coyotes was still 30,000 kills for that year. And that, of course, made the coyote after wolves disappeared into what a lot of people in America refer to as the arch predator of our time. We've been worried about wolves. It looks like the real problem are these coyotes because wolves seem to be fairly easy to control with poison. For some reason, we don't seem to be able to get rid of the coyotes. So this federal agency actually founded a laboratory. It was initially put in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then it was finally moved to Denver called the Eradication Methods Lab. And the Eradication Methods Lab not only began to come up with new poisons, but it began to push for a bill, which finally passed Congress in 1931, to fund a $10 million campaign to exterminate coyotes in North America. And so the Animal Damage Control Act of 1931 was the one that, that produced this uh, legislation and provided the money to try to wipe these animals out. Up till that point, we were putting out something like three and a half million poison baits in the West, uh, in the coyote range every year, and killing something like 300 to 400,000 of them a year. But by the 1930s, after the passage of the Animal Damage Control Act, and during World War II, the creation of a trio of new poisons, those numbers began to escalate pretty dramatically. In fact, we think that from 1945 to 1972, and I use those two dates for particular reasons, 45, because that's when we had finally invented the third of three new poisons that we were using for coyotes. And 1972 is... Uh, an end date because at that in that year, Richard Nixon actually issued a presidential proclamation ending the use of poisons against coyotes on the public lands. But in that stretch of time, um, the biological survey believes they killed about six and a half million coyotes across the country. And, and yet the science behind, you know, calling the coyote an arch predator, you know, and that, you know, the, the, the idea that the coyote was was um, damaging livestock and farming wasn't based on science. Well, yeah, that's what I was just about to say. We launched this program before we ever did any science on them. And what's kind of remarkable is that when you study this, you know, this biography of the animal through time, which is this incredible roller coaster ride from, you know, first being a kind of a sacred animal for native people and the major character in the oldest literature in North America, these Indian coyote stories, now through a time in the 20th century when we're trying to exterminate them. I mean, in the 20th century, we're launching this program without having done any science. And when we finally do the science and turn uh, investigation over to people like the Murray brothers, Adolf and Olas Murray, one of them working for the Biological Survey and one working for the National Park Service, and they published their studies in the late 1930s. What, they, what their studies point out is that, you know, coyotes actually about 85% of what they do is beneficial to humans. They're basically 
suppressing the populations of rabbits and, and mice and rats. And they're not really major predators of game animals. And to be sure, they take a certain number of sheep every year, but there are fairly easy ways for people who are running sheep on the landscape to keep coyotes at bay. You can use dogs. I mean, all sorts of techniques were known. And yet it's one of those instances where an American policy, once it's in motion, I mean, nobody seems to want to budget off its track. And so we just keep going decade after decade, trying to poison these animals into oblivion. And then Walt Disney came to the rescue. <laughs> so tell us about, about uh, you know, his contribution to saving the coyote. Walt Disney did come to the rescue, indeed. Walt Disney, uh, you know, had grown up in Missouri. He didn't grow up in coyote country. Although, of course, and we, we can talk about this in a minute, but one of the things this poisoning campaign is doing is that it's launching coyote colonization all over the country. They're spreading out of the West uh, against this harassment and spreading all through the rest of the country. But Disney didn't seem to see any coyotes when he was growing up in, in Missouri. But once he moved to the West, he began to see them. And of course, Walt Disney was interested in animals. I mean, he had made Bambi in the 1940s, the film Bambi. Uh, he had made uh, Lady and the Tramp, a film about dogs and dog catchers in the 1950s. Um, and his wonderful world of color, which was beginning to be a regular uh, Sunday serial on television in the 50s and early 1960s, began doing quite a number of shows about animals. And one of the early ones that he personally wanted to do was a show about coyotes. And so the first of what ultimately became six pro-coyote films that Walt Disney did that began to change the way ordinary Americans thought about these animals appeared in 1961. And it was called The Coyote's Lament. It was a, uh, an hour-long, uh, basically an hour-long cartoon but it told, as Disney said, and he introduced it himself, he said, I want to tell the story of the settlement of the West and what happened between people and coyotes from the coyote point of view. And so suddenly we got this sympathetic treatment of the coyote story and what had happened to these animals. And I mean, I was like 10 years old and was a devotee of the wonderful world of color and sat in front of the television and watched this film at the age of 10. I mean, and kind of became a coyote fan from that point on in my life. And I saw as a teenager, uh, because these films were still being his pro coyote films extended into the middle 1970s. I saw almost all of them. So popular culture through Walt Disney. And of course, ultimately through Wiley coyote too, is going to begin to change the way a lot of Americans feel about this animal. So I want to take this moment to let our listeners know that Dan's book, Coyote America, is available at booksellers everywhere. So Dan, just as we end the interview, what is your favorite thing about coyotes? Well, I think probably my favorite thing is how marvelously they serve as a kind of a Darwinian mirror to us. Because 
the reasons for their success. I mean, and I talk about several very specific evolutionary adaptations in the book, one of which is called fission fusion, which is why coyotes can survive this all-out assault on them and wolves can't. It also, that adaptation also happens to be one of the explanations for our biological success as a species in the world. We all think of human beings as one of the most successful of all species. We've spread out of Africa. We've spread around the globe. We've obviously really sort of taken over the world and sort of hold our hands on the tiller of evolution now. But one of the ways we were able to do it was that like coyotes, we are fission fusion animals. And what that means in the coyote sense is it means that coyotes can function as packs. They can cooperate as an effort, as in an effort to bring about some, some large accomplishment. They can take on bigger goals as members of a pack, like bringing down a deer, say. But when they run into trouble, when they're harassed by either gray wolves in the past, and this is how they evolved that ability, or by us in the 20th century when we started trying to wipe them out, they can become fission animals and they can live as individuals and pairs and they often will scatter across the landscape and colonize far places in that fission mode. And so this is one of the things that we've done in our own evolutionary past too. And so I think, as I've said a couple of times while we've been talking, uh, one of the reasons that we have this grand literature of coyote stories that goes back into the Native American past in North America is because Indian people saw that very thing. They looked at coyotes and of all the animals they saw around them, this was the one they picked out as the creature that sort of served as a kind of an avatar who sort of interpreted the human condition into the natural world. And so they made coyotes into old man coyote, the deity who created North America. Amazing. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds and, and sharing your love and knowledge of coyotes. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. So one question I never got to ask Dan, in, and so I'd like to hear your opinion on this, is, is what do you think the future of the coyote is? I mean, we think about like how, you know, human civilization is going to be changing in the next hundred years. Um, what do you think that's going to do to the coyote? All right. So there's two kind of conflicting ideas in my head when you say that. Like one, and you demonstrated this well in the interview, the coyote is really adapted to urban environments. And I think that's going to be necessary for animals to survive as we still, our population grows and that ex expanse of cities still uh, keeps growing. But on the other hand, when you look at our history and you look at how many coyotes have just been slaughtered, it was what, like 5 million coyotes were killed. In the Old West, when you look at like an animal like the buffalo, that's essentially extinct now from from the West because of this, it's hard not to be pessimistic about the future of the coyotes, especially when there's such a thriving market for hunting at the scale that it's still happening at. Yeah, it's interesting to me, too, how you have this kind of like 
city versus rural divide. Like in the city, I don't see anyone taking a shotgun and, and you know, culling the coyotes. In fact, we're, you know, there, there are a lot of, you know, I belong to uh, this kind of neighborhood group called Next Door. People might might also belong to it. And, and like, you know, we do have a coyote in our neighborhood. And like you hear people posting about spotting that coyote like virtually every day. And no one's talking about let's get rid of the coyote. And in fact, there are rules for it and so forth. So I feel like at least, you know, maybe the coyote will become extinct in rural environments, but I think it'll survive in the cities. I mean, on some level, like I understand in rural environments, especially if I was running like a farm where the coyote is a predator for the stuff that I'm raising, um, how you would want to, you know, exterminate or at least limit its ability to uh, to interact with what you're doing. But I just have a hard time seeing like the numbers that we're talking about, like half a million coyotes being killed every year and, you know, five million being exterminated when we moved west as a as a culture, how like any animal can withstand that much culling and and thrive. Yeah. And I I still I still am thinking that eventually someone's going to domesticate the thing and we're going to have coyote puppies. I, I'm not going to sign up for adopting the coyote puppy. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lundgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rihalla, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Gian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 